Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the playwright, Lisa Parry. Hi Lisa, how are you? Hi, I'm fine Kira, thank you, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How has lockdown been for you? Um, intense, I think, to be honest. I was up at um, Theatre Cloyd just as it came in and Boris did his announcement saying yeah. don't go to the theatre. Um, yeah. I was just finishing off a residency, so I was watching the tech rehearsals for Milky Peaks and sort of crossing fingers it would get to go up. And then I realised if I got corona, it was going around, you know, up there as well as anywhere else, I'd have to isolate it there. And I wouldn't be able to get back in time to have the kids ready for my husband to go back to work. So then I had to cut that short, drove back down. And then, yeah, it's been months of juggling, late night working, Google Classroom. Just, yeah, really full on. But, you know, thankfully, we're all safe and well, which is... Or you can ask exactly, I and mean, it's, it's 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 something they had to do, and it's just something that people have had to come to deal with. And I know a lot of people have really struggled with it. Yeah, and it's something like Google Classroom as well. It's just it does sort of become an all-encompassing thing. And I was really lucky that I finished a draft just before I came down. As soon as I went there, you could kind of tell what was going to happen. Mm. And I was like, I need to get the draft done. I need to get this draft done. And yeah. then I, I can buy myself a bit of, of time. Um, but, yeah, it's strange because my husband's um, a doctor at UHW. Right. So I sort of be sitting in the living room when the kids are asleep. And I'd glance up and there'd be, like, charts and stuff, COVID charts on the PC. And, um, you know, it was just so weird. And then it was kind of like, then my play's obviously been postponed. Mm. And at the time, I was like, well, it's going to be, like, it hadn't been announced. and But I was like, well, it's going to be first broke because I'm looking at a chart, you know, like, it, it yeah. was just completely crazy and intense. But having said that with it, I genuinely anticipated that I'd stop, that I'd get back and I'd be like, right, okay, I'm doing this. And, and I knew, like, Nick, my husband, was going in dealing with COVID. We've got, like, a COVID box in the porch so when he comes back hospital scrubs everything yeah. going there because you know, it can't come in the house and all this stuff and I was like right so this is now becoming normal mm. so theatre like where do you put that in terms of importance and then actually I had this weird <laughs> burst of energy at the start going yeah. no this is this genuinely really matters yeah. this still matters this is so important we still need to communicate so I sort of hoped I'd react like that but then I did react like that and so you yeah, you were able to write and still be creative during lockdown yeah. and then things that I thought weren't as important to me became really important to me like music mm. which I hadn't really gone near for years and years and my kids that they needed occupying and they're both quite musical and they were playing and then I started playing the piano. Like I've done that classic COVID. I shall learn an instrument because I have to, and I don't have time. But I was like, actually, I sort of felt like I had to do that again, which was yeah. really nice. And then our focus sort of switched, I think, a little bit. Like for years, I've been writing application things, and it's been like, who is your target audience? How can you do community outreach? And it was like, all of a sudden, I became an outreach someone who was actually being reached out to and yeah. I was like oh, I need theatre how can you know and theatre again doing like 
uh, drama groups for the kids and putting plays and stuff online. Mm. It's been an absolute godsend. And then to be at the receiving end of it and to appreciate it from that perspective rather mm. than making it, um, it's been a bit of an eye-opener in a good way as well, I think. And, and the output of so many, so many theatre companies has been huge. Putting their yeah. kind of libraries online for free. It's been fant- a fantastic resource. I yeah, I, I don't think we'll go back to a world where we don't make high quality recordings of work after this. No, I agree. It's superb. I, I wanted to start at the beginning, if it's okay. Like I do with everyone, with all my guests I've had so far. So how did you first get interested in theatre? I was thinking about this the other day. It was actually through reading, not through going, because we never went. Like, I grew up in such a... It it wasn't what we did. Middle-class people went to the theatre. I wasn't from a middle-class family. We didn't go to theatre. We didn't even go to the pantomime. Like, we never went in the building. Um, But I had a great-great-uncle who I'd visit, like, on Saturdays to see with him and my great-aunt and... It was like you couldn't breathe in the house for smoke. It was, it, I loved it. There was a piano in there, and he, he was obsessed with books and reading. And there was mm. Shakespeare on the bookshelves. And yeah, he used to just let me raid his bookshelves. So I read A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I got totally transfixed by it. And I, could, I was just like, my God, I can read this. This is fun. And this yeah. is like funny, and I'm enjoying it. And it's Shakespeare. This is, yeah. And then Kenneth Branagh was around at the time as well, making Henry V and Much Ado About Nothing. And yeah. I started to really love it. It felt really modern and fresh. Um, and then I went on to do theatre studies at school. Mm. And, yeah, so I'd have a lot of theatre trips out to Birmingham Rep and we wrote a piece that went on at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. And Edward Bond came in as well. Oh, wow. Spoke, it was pretty amazing and then it was like actually things it doesn't have to be naturalistic and it became like this completely mind-blowing different medium than what you see on tv or or film and then then i went to uni and i kind of didn't really go back to it for a while uh, it was weird oh, i had a sort of lull of it what did you study at uni uh, i did english but i i was a i was one of those kids at the time it was Social mobility was a bit easier, I think, back then. Right. So I went through um, quite a rough comp, and I got into Oxford to do English, which was obviously great, um, but you don't really do drama on the syllabus. So much right. not modern stuff. You can opt to do it, but it sort of stops around 1920. Or, okay. Like, it's a very sort of modern, or it wasn't a really modern course at the time, and then... The people who were doing drama were very public school, and I think I panicked a bit and just sort of went into my shell. Were you involved um, in any of those societies? Not really. I did. I was in a production of Woomerang in Freshers Week, the Sue Townsend piece. Oh, okay. Which was a lot. But um, no, I, I totally, I, I think I freaked out. It was genuinely, every time I'd sort of think about doing it, because I, I was acting then. Whenever I did an audition, it was literally full of people who said, you know, I just wanted to direct Arcadia for all my life. And I was like, I, I've not read that yet. I don't really know what that is. <laughs> I had this complete, like, I, I, yeah, this isn't for me. And I, again, it was that weird class thing came up. This isn't for me, this isn't for me. And then yeah. after, when I was doing journalism, I felt a real yearning to write it again. I'm not mm. sure whether it was just I was in the wrong job or... Um, and then I went and did the Birmingham course and then just re-found the love of it, I think. And uh, if, I, if I can go back to it, we're going to come to the Birmingham course in a bit. But mm. where did your interest in journalism come from? I, I think I've always been... I've always wanted to explore things from the sort of bottom-up. Like, I'm not interested in what the bosses think so much as the people on the street. Mm. Uh, journalism, especially like community journalism, was a really good way of doing that. Um, and I've always been interested in politics since I was a kid. So I think, yeah, 
they sort of combined and I could write mm. whilst doing it and I the other thing as well was when I came out of uni I remember going on um, work experience and I literally couldn't write a news story it was so weird I sort of came out and I thought I've written all of these essays on like Chaucer and Shakespeare and you know Renaissance yeah. poets and all of this stuff and I couldn't write a story about a bus accident or you know a sort of school fight because it was a completely different style mm. and relearn that skill and I've always sort of thought if you're a writer you're a writer and you should be able to write anything you put your mind to you know in you should be able to have those sort of skills mm. and I didn't and I wanted to get them and I think that's what sort of got me into it really and the fact that I it was an amazing experience you know I got to meet loads of different people from everywhere and I got to see stuff outside my bubble Mm. which I think now as a playwright is really really important I don't think only having an experience in theatre is that helpful sometimes you, you have to be able to know what's going on and, and life outside of that to write it accurately I think so I think I think I agree with that you've got to have experiences outside of that and to in order to be able to write about those things, honestly, and with that experience. Um, yeah. And why did you decide to kind of curtail being a journalist? Were there a lot of pressures that you felt while uh, you... Why didn't I stay in? It was weird. I was, about, I was getting to the point where I was um, I either had to come out or I was going to London. Right. Um, and I did, that's it. Then I'd been down there doing that, and, and that was that. And yeah, it was odd. They were closing some schools. I was working up in Grimsby, so I was doing. Um, it was so bizarre. Like I spent two years covering stories like Maxine Carr and Ian Huntley and all of this God. stuff. And then they were shutting loads of schools. The council was shutting schools and having this massive educational rejig, and and I was the education reporter. So I knew the stuff inside out I thought I did and then I went to interview this woman and she was a mom and she's got five kids but because of the the style of the way you have to write they all had to have their surnames in and they had different surnames and I just thought god she's just going to get judged and that's the style of the paper and there is nothing I can do about it and then I had this really weird sort of crisis that I remembered from my English degree we were doing critical theory I think it was some Marxist book or something and it was all about how syntax and the structure of the way you write can actually frame thought that it's not just the way you encapsulate thought it actually frames the way you think and then I had this complete panic which really I should have had three years earlier about what am I doing here like this isn't what I want to do I don't want someone to be on the bus with this paper reading this story and this woman knows far more about this topic than I do you know, and it just didn't feel right. And I thought, I can't portray her properly. I can't I can't portray her character. I can't portray why she's really fighting for this school mm. to stay open in the way that I could if I was writing a play. Yeah. So then I thought, actually, do you know what? I think I need to start writing drama again. And then I got back into it again and then went to Brum and bought myself two years' time to think again <laughs> um, when I was at uni there. Uh, how did that masters prepare you? What was it like? Was it a good experience? Yeah, I think it's it's an individual thing. I I think it's really important to remember that it's a craft. Like there is a reason why it's called playwriting. It's writing. It's like, mm. Mm. Um, and it taught me a lot about that. Um, and yeah, there were like writers came in, some more Buffini came in, Stephen Jeffries came in, I was taught by Sarah Woods, which was amazing, Chris O'Connell, David Edgar would come in, you know, and you you'd learn a lot. Um and you'd learn things about adaptation and writing for film as well and T V mm. and yeah, I I loved it. It but it was at the point in my life I think where it was really worthwhile me doing it. Um but, you know, it's the craft. You can learn. It's important yes. to learn craft. That's not to say everybody should go and do an MPhil. 
in playwriting, but I think the focus time of just reading the books, going to see the work, you know, it gave me two years to go, I need to read plays today, and I need to go and see some theatre and educate myself, and I, I think I needed that at the time. And kind of broaden your horizons as a writer, taking in what was already out there and allowing that to to influence your work and develop you as a writer in that way as well. So. I think going on these courses and then assuming at the end of them you're going to have a hit at the Royal Court, though, that's, no. not, you know, that's not the reality. That's... And I, I don't think they should be sold on that basis, but I think... In, if you're like, actually, I want some time and this is a way I can do this. I mean, I actually, to be honest, I probably learnt more when I, well, when we finished, we teamed up with um, the director graduates at Birkbeth. Okay. And we did, some, it was great. So we did some shows at the 503 in London. And then I moved back down to London for a bit and I did front of house at the Royal Court and I got paid to watch shows. Oh, um, <laughs> That was how I paid my rent. And it was awesome. And that was a better, well, a different sort of training, probably, to be fair. Um, you know, when you've seen Jerusalem over 30 times and yeah. watched every subtle change and what's working and what's not working for the audience. And then you do it with a David Hare play and then you do it, you know, you learn a lot. You, learn, you learn how plays work, the anatomy of plays, how they're put together. And, uh, and in a really kind of detailed way, I guess. And you yeah. know what, what works and what doesn't work. And you learn about the theatre building, and I, I think that's something that actually my time at the court gave me in a way that nothing really has done since. Like when people talk about the cans, I know what they're talking about. I know mm. what clearance is. I know what the job of front of house is inside out in terms of bomb scares or, you know, and that's how a building works I know what the departments are for you know and I think you, you're a cog in a machine when you're a playwright and you, it's a good idea to have an understanding of the machine and uh, so yeah do you think the playwright should get to understand the role of every individual on a production or know what's involved to make what? this play happen I want to be able to walk onto a stage and look up at a lighting rig and know what I can do. Yeah. Or, and if I'm writing something that's actually, it's going to be, I want to know what I've got to play with. And I want to be able to give people the potential to do their jobs properly. Yeah. Like a lighting designer is going to have so much more, you know, so many better ideas than I am about certain things. But I need a rough scope in my head, I think, while I'm writing it. You know, you're, you're writing a blueprint and other people bring all their stuff to that so you kind of need to know what they're bringing and I think yeah. it's a good idea to have a little clue about that from the off really and then you don't micromanage either you don't want like pages and pages and pages of stage directions and you trust people more and things and I yeah. think that's really important it's true I, yeah, I, I still have a tendency to write too many stage directions and that's one of my weaknesses. I need to kind of hold back on that. Uh, but yeah, it's just about trusting people, I guess. Yeah, and Edward Albee, if you ever read any Albee, like, it's insane. He's literally like, and the actor turns to the right, and the actor turns to the left. <laughs> um, but even if he hadn't written them in, they'd have to do that because they put it like that in his head, and often if you leave them out, Mm. I'll get to that anyway because that's the way it works because that's yeah. what it was in your, when you when you wrote it it's kind of fascinating really yeah. but I quite like it for like just having the gumption to do it I, I'll, <laughs> I'll have to read some Albie and for you breaking into the industry um, oh. as a writer what how did you find it what were the difficulties or was it quite straightforward for you? Um, I don't know if I have broken in, like, I never sort of think people have broken in until they've got, like, three play texts published and collected works number one oh, okay. coming out. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think what I found really odd was when I finished the Birmingham course, I'd have been 25-ish, and in terms of UK theatre at the time, that was viewed as late and old and I was 25 
do you know what I mean? It's insane. And then I, I had a short on and something else on in New York because um, I was working with a director who was in London and she was doing this project in New York and it sounded really exciting. Mm. And I was like, right, I'm going to have a working holiday. I'm going to go to New York. This is like going to be amazing. And we had a um, Q&A after the show and this played Martin Seagal in Manhattan. And everybody in New York was like, oh my God, you're so young to have written this. You're so young, you're so young, you're so young. Yeah. And I came back and I was in London and I was like, this is insane. I was like, we're so, it was so youth obsessed at, at the time. Mm. And I found that quite hard because a lot of schemes were shut. And I think that's still true. There seems to be like a magical age of 26. And if you haven't broken in by 26, that's it, forget it. And I think that's awful because you, as a writer, I always had the presumption that the longer I lived, the more experience I'd have had of the world. But, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. But, and yet the perspective, and it's probably, to be fair, I think it came from a sort of marketing push. Mm. And I really hope it's not still the case, although I sort of see on Twitter that it is, that it was like youth, youth, youth. And I, I found that bizarre. Well, well... And it's came, weird. Like, when he wrote God, I like Wolf was like, "Do not publish anything before you're thirty. You'll regret it." And then, yeah, and then there was like this weird thing, which I'm really hoping as an industry we're moving away from because I think it's ludicrous. I hope, I hope so because I'm 25 now, so hopefully I'm not done for it yet. <laughs> yeah, catch you next year. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do everything in the next year. <laughs> And as a woman as well, I think, because I had two kids. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. I think things have got better, to be fair, since Me Too. But obviously there were certain schemes and projects that I, I felt I could do, but they would have been more difficult and mm. certain support weren't in place in a way that now I think they actually would be. Is that um, about theatres having specific policies on this sort of thing or having a specific approach? Yeah, I think so. And then I taught a workshop when I was at um, Theatre Cloyd as residency and there were some women on that who were, you know, concerned about it because they'd had kids and they sort of felt like it would slow down any writing career that they that they'd have and they wouldn't be taken as seriously and things and again I think things are shifting with that because we've got like um, parents in the performing arts now and and things so hopefully it, it's mm. it's sort of in, but it was that was a difficult um difficult time well I mean you do what you do do you know what I mean I was yeah. kind of like I got a baby strapped to the front and I was typing at the time but in terms of how seriously I was taking when I was doing that, um, yeah, I'm not quite quite okay. sure, but I think it's getting better. Like you, you see a lot now with um, people returning from maternity leave to become more of a priority group and yeah. things. So hopefully, I think society is shifting a little bit, which is I, I hope so. Um, yeah, hope so. And it just needs to continue on that trajectory. I'm. I want to move on slightly. I want to ask you about your your writing process. Um, is it the same on everything you write, or does it vary depending on the project? No, it varies and it's changing massively. <laughs> I've two said children. I think yeah. before, I didn't need a plan. I was sort of like, I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm going to write an amazing play. And then I'd write a first draft, and then I'd be like, no, I need to rework such amazing play to make it like legible. Whereas <laughs> um, now, I'm literally like, I think I've got this idea and I'll structure it a lot of the time before I write it. Because actually, I, if I think I've got to write a play and it's 120 pages, and then I'll just sit there and I will literally have a panic attack and go, I can't fill 120 pages. Like, I just can't do it. But I can fill 10. And then if I break it into manageable chunks and I can possibly get a decent, like, say, three really good pages written while they're at school. Yeah. And it's it literally that sort of micromanaging I have to do now just to get the things written. Right. Uh, but also, I think I've got a kind of 
I'm not sure if this is still true because I've kind of been in a weird time with lockdown and I've got projects that are on the go, but usually when I start something that's fresh, it's either it feels like an inside out play where it's come from like an emotional or sort of gut response to something, or it's an outside in play where the ideas almost come from the structure. Okay. That I because I haven't done that structure before and I want to sort of push my craft a bit and see mm. what I can get. Um, and then hopefully they'll mesh a bit as I go along, so it's not that obvious. Um, but yeah, I think I have two different sort of impulses with it. Um, but yeah, now I'm I'm planning a lot, a lot more just to get things done. And do you plan out everything? Like, do you know how it ends before you start writing dialogue? Um, how much do you know? If I'm planning in detail, I'll know. Because sometimes as well, I'll have the end in my head before I get, I have the beginning in my head and mm. I know what I'm working towards. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's nice to just sit there and not know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then get to it. Um, but that again, that depends on project and, and time. I think now if I were trying to do that, I might have an almighty freak out about it. Um, it's sort of like holiday play. I like to write where it's just me and my laptop and let's see what happens. Yeah. But a lot of the time I've got like an image in my head right. of the ending. Otherwise I think endings can be hard. You can end up with like, you're trying to end it, but you can't quite, and then you try and end it again. And then you've got like five endings within the one ending mm. and it doesn't really work so well. I, I um, find the endings the hardest. Um, um, yeah. I just, yeah, very difficult to have an ending that is satisfying for you as a writer, I find. At least they're getting to that point. Yeah, because they've got to be correct. Like, they've got to feel like they're structurally right, but they've yeah. also got to hit the stomach. And it's got to be the unexpected, which was so obvious all along that you couldn't quite... <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't, it's difficult. Like, I remember watching the Cherry Orchard, the Gary Owen one at the Sherman. Yeah, I saw and, that. Yeah, oh, God, we got to the end of the play, and it was all like... And then she left the house, or he left the house, or... Yeah, yeah. You know, and then sort of like servant isn't there who comes on and but like it's modern so it's not a servant and I was like oh right okay so that's that and then yeah uh, <laughs> like, like the cherry orchard yeah. and I know this and then the dead kid ran on and I'm like I oh, know I'm gonna sob my eyes out and it was that kick and yeah. then whenever I'm thinking about the end, I was like, of course the dead child is going to run out. But I, I don't, see, I don't know if I agree with you so I don't know whether it was warranted. I don't know whether it was, whether you needed that or whether it, he just needed to give the audience space at the end of that play, whether it was mm -hmm. a bit too on the nose. I, I don't know. I know what you're saying. Okay. I, I, I will be honest, I absolutely loved it because it just felt so... Them going felt very mental. It felt like a very sort of um, intellectual response mm. and an intellectual adaptation. But then when the kid came on, I was like, oh God. Like, yes. and that whole, like, it was just completely illogical. Like, he's going to be looking for his family and they're not going to be there, mm. but he's dead, but he won't know. And it was just that weird, it made perfect sense, but no logical sense. And it sort of appealed to something deeper in me, mm. I sort of felt. Yeah. I was like, damn, Gary Owen's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can I see like, that, yeah. Like, yeah. Every time I see a Gary Owen play, though, I do burst into tears. It's like, it's terrible. I'm just like, making me cry. Okay. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, um, so you, in 2012, you founded Agent 160 with Sandra Bendelow. Um, so this was to promote the work of female playwrights. Yeah, well, Sandy was one of the writers and then she sort of took it over later. Mm. So um, when we set it up originally, it was me and Dan Baker, who's a producer. Right and Louise Stevens, who's a dramaturg. So we did um, two shows with it. We did Agent 160 Presents, Agent 160, which was um, monologues. We did them at the 503 chapter and The Arches in Glasgow when it was still okay. open. And then they went on to a show in Belfast as well. And then after we did a fun palace at the Millennium Centre. So it was female playwrights from... Um, Ireland, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, um, England, and Wales. 
and then we toured the work because it was it was in response to this statistic that only 17% of produced plays are written by mm. female playwrights so we were like right we want to do something to address that because that was just like not acceptable and then yeah so we did the quickest way to do it was monologues and then all four arts councils kind of funded it as well so it was it was yeah. fascinating actually taking them around the different countries and seeing the different audiences reactions to them they were different and what kind of responses did you get well, people would laugh in different places like an english audience and a scottish audience and a welsh audience would laugh in slightly different places in the pieces mm. or they'd sort of feel more moved by different pieces and that was interesting and then we'd have a talk about um what was going on with female playwrights and stuff after the after the shows um which was great and guest speakers and things like every um lind gardner chaired one for us at the 503 and um queeners came at the arches and stuff it was it was great like it was Mm. it was really worthwhile um but again they were short plays you know it's really easy to go right let's address the statistics by putting on a load of short plays versus putting on a load of getting 50 percent of produced full-length work on the main stage because that's a different Mm. a different do you think uh, quarters of an answer, or do you think, do you think CMM, for example, should be mandated that 50% of its work in the season should be by female playwrights? To be fair, I think Joe's last season, of which I'm a part, was 50-50, because there was me, Tracy... And Kath Chandler. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but it, it was, if it wasn't 50%, it was pretty damn close because it's just one of those things that I automatically scan for when I pick up the term card. Mm-hmm. Um, with quotas, everyone's always a bit like, ah, quotas, that's yeah. just like. But I remember having a meeting with um, an officer at Arts Council England once, and she was, it was after the Equal Opportunities legislation came out, so. Legally, it's meant to be 50-50. Any state funding that goes to something is meant to be 50-50. So the Arts Councils could technically police this and be like, we're not giving you funding because you're not doing 50-50 work. And I remember talking about it to an officer and she said that it'll sort itself out. And I was like, but if Parliament hadn't got female-only shortlists, like... We'd be yeah, looking at like, 200 years before it sorted itself out. And she sort of shrugged her shoulders. And it it was, it wasn't a priority. And I don't think it's monitored still. Mm. And I don't think it's as big a priority. And I think things here aren't so bad. Because actually, I think it's something Joe probably might have had his eye on. I'm not sure. It just felt like that for the mm. first season. But like dirty protest are brilliant when it comes to when you see what the work they're putting out in terms of gender balance and stuff. Um, Cloyd's, I, I have no idea what their stats are, but from what I when I scan stuff, I'm like it seems quite mm. fair. But that's individuals, you know. In terms of there was obviously the thing at the National Theatre in London where there was a letter written there about gender and female parents yeah. on main stage, and also the shows that women get. You know, is it fair to say? There's a studio play on in the Sherman. Is that of an equal weight as a main house show in mm. the Sherman? Like, where's the gender balance with main stages as well as yeah, studio places? Um, yeah, so maybe. I, I think it's something that's kind of gone off the boil a bit and needs to go back on it again. Yeah. But I say that, but, you know. But I do think it's it's more... It is important that it's that it's pushed to the fore. Definitely. We're losing voices and we can't afford to lose voices. And, and, you know, young women who want to become playwrights need to see themselves represented on stages. And there needs to be more of that, obviously. Yeah, and it's sort of common sense, isn't it? You know, if you Mm. want to that you need to see someone else doing that and I think in Wales it's bizarre because when I was in London I think I could sort of 
everyone always had like sort of Carol Churchill thing. If you're a female playwright, there's Carol Churchill. Yeah. yeah. Inventive and all that, and there's and that's the sort of tradition. And then you've got other female playwrights as well, but you've got Carol Churchill, you know. Whereas here, actually, God, I mean, at the top's Kath, Kath Chandler, and there's Kath Chandler, and I sort of think, I really hope she's not carrying a sort of weight because we all look up to Kath yeah. Chandler because she's so amazing, um, and she's the one that's broken broken mm. through, um, and like amazing that she has done that bit. We're in 2020. There should be more, like, work, mm. more people. We need. I'm, I, I have a horrible feeling that what happens is people leave theatre to go and write primarily for telly and film because yeah. you need to pay the mortgage, and then you lose those voices because we're not supporting people well enough to stay in the theatre industry. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. I'd say. Um, but I'm going to move on again if, if that's alright I'd like to talk about yeah. 2023 which is your yeah. play that was produced in 2018 um, yeah. how did you come to write the play what inspired you to write it it's a very theatre story I was um, <laughs> waiting I was having a meeting in years ago back in London and I was at the 503 and if you go upstairs, so it's like the pub, and then you go upstairs, and I really hope they've still got it. I haven't been down there for ages. A massive leather, big brown sofa, and I was sat on there waiting to see someone. And I was having a cup of tea, and I was flicking through um, the papers there, and it was in the Times, and it was a literal, like a tiny little news in brief saying there was a law change that if you um, were conceived by a donor sperm or, you know, donor gamete, you could find your biological parent in 2023. And I was like, God, that's interesting. Mm. And that was it. There was like nothing else about it. I started like digging about and just doing loads and loads of research, and then it just felt like it was more relevant. It as it kept getting closer and closer and closer. It was like there's nothing about this anywhere, and this is like huge. Like what what constitutes a family? What constitutes who you are as a human mm. being? Is it DNA or is it nurture or, or like what is it? And that sort of science arts interplay I find really really fascinating and it we, we don't see a lot of sciencey stories on stage probably because we're actually quite scared of it I mm. think and trying to understand it um so yeah I wanted to have a bit of an explorer and then started writing it but it was um yeah it was a lovely show it was it was a really good process and you worked with the staff back yeah Oh, who's saying Steph Back is basically, I think, one of the most talented actors mm. in Wales around at the time. She's genius. She came into the audition, so the part is um, the character's deaf, but she can look read. Was it, now, Steph, was it written? Probably, was it written as the character was deaf? Yeah, it was written cool. as the character was deaf because we explored whether to like bring in deafness for thematic reasons and communication right. and all of that in an R&D and then we were like right let's do it. It, it it felt right and it felt like it was working so we had like loads of like disability arts come we were in on it you know we would you know we kind of we were like right okay we need to make sure we got this right and then we were auditioning and then I'm I'm the play and I think me I'm quite when I write I'm very dialogue heavy and I was like we've got so we had a couple of actors who came in to audition for it and the part was written that the part could lip read, the character can lip read. And Steph came in and Steph can't lip read. So she was like, oh, but it's fine because so we've got like interpreters, you know, for the auditions and anything anyway. And she was like, oh, it's fine though because I just memorized all of the other parts. And we were like, what? And she was like, I remember, and she was just like, she just blew us away. And she memorized the entire. That's play. incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And not only to give, like, a phenomenal performance, she knew Richard. I mean, there were times in rehearsal where Richard or Tom, Richard Ellis or Tom Lumber, yeah. they'd forget a line and Steph would know it. <laughs> and it was brilliant, you know. And the rapport between the three of them as well was great. Um, but, yeah, it, it was phenomenal working with her. She was, she's incredible. Mm. 
and and the players at home were you happy with the response that you you got? Yeah, I think so. And it, it's one of those things as well. I think as a writer, you learn more about yourself and your process primarily by getting stuff on. Mm. You're not gonna um, ever learn as much as you are from watching an audience watching your play. Horrible though it is. Yeah. Um, it is true. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it it was nice. It was a good, and then we went. What was really lovely with it was um, we took it down to the Barbican in London sections of it to do as well. Oh, wow. And sort of mounted those sections as part of, um, there's a sort of fertility, it's like a science arts festival around fertility at the Barbican. So um, me and the three actors, because the director Zoe Wharton, she was, I think she was in rehearsal for something else at the time, we took, we took sections of it down and we did it um, a day down in London as well, which was really great just to sort of, grab all the props and stuff again and, and head down there. Yeah. It was really lovely. Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was great because we did it with a company I've got called Illumin Theatre, which I run with Zoe Waterman, because like, we just work really well together. And um, yeah, it was a really good process, actually. It was it was great. Fantastic. I wish I'd have seen it. But um, hopefully I'll get a chance to see um, the Mirtha Stigmatist, which is hopefully going to be on at some point. Autumn um, next year, touch every single thing that is wooden and not affected by COVID around me. Um, yeah, hopefully. And hopefully by then as well, we'll be through it and the audiences will be back. Mm. How, how are you yeah. feeling about that play now? Do you... um, well, it's weird because... It's a political powder keg of a play, and I think COVID actually is going to put a rocket up it in a way yeah. that is dramatically quite exciting to do. Um, it may or may not change an emphasis of it, I'm not quite sure, but it feels more relevant now than it did just before, and it felt very relevant mm. just before. Um so, so for, yeah. for people who maybe haven't heard or don't know about it, could you just tell people yeah. what it's about? So, um, set in Merthyr, which my dad's family's from, and which I seriously love with a passion. It's such an amazing place. Um, it's a 16-year-old girl called Karis, and she's in a classroom with her teacher, Sean, and Karis claims to have the stigmata, which are the marks that Christ has after being crucified and some people claim to have them and they bleed every Friday right. and she is a 16 year old girl that she's got the marks of Christ in Merthyr and that it's God's gift to Merthyr and the teacher doesn't really believe her um, which you know I'm not sure you would if you've got a 16 year old girl who's walking around <laughs> going on the next Jesus but um, yeah so it's a lot of fun and it's it's so much fun to write a girl from Merthyr. I like. I have had the best time writing dialogue in that play. I have had an absolute ball doing it. Yeah. It's been brilliant. And then we've we've done a bit of workshopping on it at the Sherman. Um, mm. You know, and then when he, I need because I got to a point now. I've got a draft where I, I need to hear it again. Yeah. And then I need to look at because it is. It is very much. It's a play of now. You know, and you can't stick a play on stage and pretend this stuff hasn't gone on but by the same time it's not about this stuff but are, are you are you changing any of it to reflect what we've been through yeah i don't think you i don't want to it's it's a really odd one because it packs such a political punch but by the same time i think you'd watch it and have a really nice night out like not a nice right. night out i think you'd have a good night out i think you'd have like a, a fun you can't write dialogue in Merthyr and it doesn't have some kind of <laughs> it's fun, it's impossible yeah. and it's not like a sort of Gavin and Stacey like ha ah, 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 thing but it's just the, the shrewdness and the observation mm. and the just like taking no crap attitude of Merthyr is just such a dramatic gift so yeah I mean you can't pretend it's not and there are certain things about it that without going like OTT and making it glaringly obvious you know mm. you're in a classroom now well we've just you know my kids are in classrooms now and they're totally different to how they were before like 
it has to speak now. We can't pretend this hasn't gone on, but by the same time, I don't think anyone's really want to going to go in the theatre and explore COVID. Like, we've just been living no, through it. You that's know? true. Um, but to make it, you know, it has to be contemporary, and this is contemporary, but it's not about COVID. But it, it's quite exciting that it's at a point where I can dramatically do that, and it's still relevant to what the play is yeah. trying to say. It sounds really I interesting. Think- I cannot wait. I like. I cannot wait to get back into rehearsals. I literally cannot wait. I'm. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Um, hopefully, soon. Um, so you just you're currently one of Claude's writers in residence for 2020. What's that been like, considering the conditions that we've been under for most of it's, this year? It's a bad one, yeah, because. I am, and I still feel like it very much am, even though I'm like in Cardiff and they're all the way up there. So I went up and I did um, the residency bit. So I stayed at Gladstone's Library and was driving into Cloyd's and I got to see all the shows, you know, and, and everything. And I was around the building and then having all the sort of talks and things that come as part of it. But when it's all gone down, it's been really great because actually I think Cloyd's emphasis is about giving. And I think with a lot of writer residencies and stuff it's a lot about what can I get out of this what can I get out of this to develop me what can I mm. and actually with Cloyd it hasn't been like that and I've really appreciated that it's been more like what can I as a writer do for them mm. and I think playwrights have to be entrenched in communities and even though I'm not up there like I've written a play cause Jennifer Lund's one of the um writers in residence as well and when we went into lockdown she was like gang let's all write a play for them for that to give out to anybody in the community who wants to do it because people will want to be creative and stuff Mm -hmm. so as one of their projects um they made plays available and people could just do them in their homes so i wrote one of those and like jen was just such a good idea um and then we're constantly like in touch and then there's zoom calls just to check in Mm -hmm. on us and then any ideas that we've got we can approach them with not necessarily ideas for plays but just community stuff and how we yeah. you know, whatever we can do we'll do um so yeah it's it's been really great actually uh, it's, oh. it's like having a boss but like not a boss boss but i think when you're freelance you kind of drift a little bit from the theatrical infrastructure and something like yeah. this happens and you can feel really isolated and I think they've tried very much not to have people feeling like that. Um, so I really appreciated it, really. I am glad that it was a good experience and you managed to get a lot, lot done by the time. And yeah, and also, I mean, I got a lot of writing done because there's the writer's room in the building as well and then I could use the library as part of it. Yeah. But I was popping in and out of Milky Peaks rehearsals and just seeing wow. work and just generally just hanging out up there. And it's really valuable, actually, to sort of... Because, you know, I'm not someone, I don't think, I'm, you know, I'm not ruling anything out, but I'm not someone who'd write a musical. So for me to go into rehearsals for a musical, you yeah. know, pretty mind-blowing and actually challenged my practice, I think in a way and it was um yeah and the performers that were in that as well you know it was just it was a really great thing to see and and be part of in a tiny tiny little way yeah and seeing how other people work and how you can take elements of that into your own practice i guess as well and then it was quite lovely sort of being in the writers room there which feels so 70s and there's like a weird smoky shades long and a, and a really old desk and there were all these old books and while I was up there um, Med Barker messaged me and was like oh, I wrote two princes in that room and I was like what? <laughs> you know that's how I'm home I've just finished reading it so it, it's quite nice that you sort of, there's that continuity yeah. as well you know? and yeah it's quite lovely actually uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you before I let you go is what advice would you give to someone, maybe someone like me who's just starting out as a writer, or what advice do you wish you'd been given when you were just starting out? I've got advice, but it's not practical. Um, 
actively use, but it might help your sanity. Okay. Um, I genuinely think, bearing in mind you have to pay the bills, okay? You have to pay the bills. So mm. what I'm about to say does not come from a position of privilege. I'm skinned to live on porridge. But um, don't obsess about career. Obsess about the craft. Because actually... Things you're gonna go for things and you're gonna get rejected for the vast majority of them and then you're gonna go for things and you're gonna get them and that feels amazing. But you actually want to improve constantly as a writer all the way through and just Med Barker said to me was just devote yourself to the craft and the rest will follow and I think that was probably the best piece of advice I've ever got because it theatre takes it out of you, it's all consuming and if it's not you're in the wrong job really I think but you know it's not I think people get really bitter and what really scared me once was I went to a BAFTA thing in London and the screenwriter was taking questions and about 20 people were really horrible like they sort of were asking and it's like but why have you got this and I haven't got this and it's kind of like no no this isn't good this film's really good like you have to appreciate the art and don't get caught up mm. in that um, hamster wheel or that sort of treadmill of career progression like literally love the craft someone writes a play that's great and you love the play that's a good thing for everybody yeah. and for the industry and for your craft because you're they're going to learn what you liked about that and, and how to do it and there's a there's if you saw present laughter the bit with and uh, the play with andrew scott in no the, i didn't uh, but i feel scared about it and it's always coward and he's basically no coward in it and then the whole thing is kind of like, you know, career and darling and what and what. Apart from this section where he starts talking about playwriting and he snaps into absolute seriousness and it matters and it's the craft, the craft, the craft and how a play works. And that's the rub. That's what that character is. When you scratch away career and scratch away anything, it's what makes a good play. And you sort of have to devote yourself to that, I think. And then the rest all follow that's, my advice that's, to anybody can do it, other than it's hard as nails and this is like the worst time but you know <laughs> but we keep going we keep going <laughs> yeah it's it is what it is you know and yeah but yeah devote yourself to the craft and everything else can be what it will be thank you Lisa it's been fun talking to you thanks for your time oh. I'm, I'm, thank you and thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next episode of In Lockdown Red. But for now, it's bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown Red. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.